James Christensen was encouraged to seek additional training and gain new experiences at, a ver- at every opportunity, prompting him to leave home for the first time at the age of 14 to investigate his interests in archaeology. Archaeology, the study of past human cultures through material evidence, allowed Jim to combine all of his interests and see hands-on how various cultures solved similar problems in different environments. It was an extension of survival training, and one that allowed him to work outdoors most of the time. Due to his previous volunteer experience, Jim was on payroll as an archaeologist field technician at the University of Idaho months prior to attending his university classes. This would be his college job. Jim worked for 23 years as a cultural resource management archaeologist or non-academic archaeological contractor. His specialties expanded to include prehistoric and historical archaeology, tribal consultation, U.S. and I have no idea how to pronounce this, but it's U-N-E-S-C-O, regulatory compliance and legal consultation. And I saw that smile. He is frequently tapped by federal agencies to bridge the gap between their representatives and sovereign tribes to mediate effective nation-to-nation consultation. The majority of his clients have been in the energy, defense, foreign policy, water, timber, transportation, remediation, and land management sectors. Am I getting all of this right? Well, mostly. Uh, mostly, you okay. Don't see, you don't see UNESCO, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, well. Jim cross-trained to fit into multidisciplinary teams, hazmat, I, I got that right, nuclear remediation, environmental sciences, wildland fire, fire archaeology, and unexploded military ordnance remediation, to name a few. This training helped him fit into increasingly diverse teams representing outside industries in their lobbying efforts, directing environmental compliance programs, and contributing to soil and groundwater remediation planning. Working throughout the United States, he's represented industry leaders while cooperating with most federal, state, and local agencies and tribal governments. He's directed programs, served as vice president of a small consulting firm. Taking a nice long break from archaeological contracting, Jim uses his training as a certified unexploded ordnance technician, that's a mouthful, to help mediate explosive military munitions and chemical weapons. Currently, he's seeking the opportunity to continue his growth while helping the people of all nations. In his spare time, you have spare time, Jim enjoys encouraging others within different communities to be as self-sufficient as possible through public and private education. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate. Tonight, my special guest is archaeologist and unexploded ordnance mom technician, James Christensen. Welcome to my campfire, Jim. Thanks for having me on your show, Kate, and congratulations on having such a successful one. Oh, well, I owe that to my people that I talk to, that I interview, and my awesome uh, producer, but I don't want to say that in front of everybody because my producer might be listening. Angel probably is. He is. I am always around. (laughs) My first question to you, Jim, is Uh who is James Christensen? I told you not to blindside me, but well, that's kind of a difficult one to difficult one to answer. Um, I know, that's why I asked it. I'm just a poor simple country boy from eastern Washington. Lost my way somewhere along the, along the path. And, yeah, when he was six. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, it's kind of a difficult one to say because, well, I've spent so much of my life trying to manage a career and things like that. I find myself asking myself that question quite a bit. But I try to, try to seek my roots, and that's been a little more difficult some, some years than others. But who are you really? Who am I really? Well, I don't know. There's the sensitive side and there's the there curious is? side. Yeah, shucks. But um, no, that I tend to really lean toward the curious. Uh, 
I'm the guy that when you're watching news and I hear something I don't know about, I'm looking it up. Uh, it's been constantly what I've been doing my entire life is I've always been trying to learn. And just that experience, you know, has that's really played heavily into my professional career is just always constantly trying to pick at everything. And if there's something I don't know, I want to learn about it. Uh, that really sums me up right there, I think, is just pretty much I'm the curious kind of guy. Um, but, you know, I'm also a family guy. Right now, I've spent a lot of my time taking care of my dad. And that's been that's been a really major adjustment for both of us. But it's, it's difficult to say. I think that there's a lot of path ahead of me, hopefully, where I'm able to really explore more of what makes me me. Wow. Good answer. Not really. I wasn't going to say that on the air, but okay. <laughs> Explain to me how you got started in archaeology. Uh, that goes back to when I was three years old. My grandfather, he was a oh, dirt farmer in, in uh, Iowa, just off the Mississippi. And he spent a lot of his time actually watching and learning. Uh, he taught himself English from German, uh, taught himself how to read, taught himself archaeology just by watching. While other farmers were out there plowing up, uh, plowing over mounds from the mound builders on the Mississippi, he was farming around them and fenced them off to keep the cattle off. A lot of the other folks said that he was nuts because he uh, wasn't making any money off that ground, but he thought otherwise, kept quite a collection. When he's working with horses, he's going a lot slower. So he was able to pick things up and catalog them. And he was constantly researching and teaching himself about the history and prehistory of the area. That caught the attention of some uh, local universities. And so he worked with them on some excavations. And when I was three years old, well, I uh, found myself in the backfill of a, of a university excavation with a garden trowel, picking away at, well, dirt that I've been screened through, finding worms. And that kind of got my interest going. Then growing up, our idea of a family vacation was going out on long road trips and just checking out history, historic sites. And eventually, you know, it came time for me to have a job. And so I was working as a finished carpenter uh, or working for a finished carpenter. And uh, that was about when I was 14 and uh, got a chance to be able to take off with my dad and go volunteer on an archaeological excavation. I really liked that. So I came went back to work and got to thinking about it over a hammer and went up to the boss and said, hey, I quit. Walked home, told my parents I just quit my job, packed a bag and left. Went back and volunteered for the rest of the summer doing that. And that kind of catapulted me right on into archaeology full time. Wow. What was your first job? Ooh, my first real paying job. That probably would have been, well, that would have been working as a finished carpenter. Well, probably bucking hay before that. Then it was I meant as an archaeologist, Jim. I was an archaeologist. That was probably um, that was probably when I was eighteen, um, right after working on a, working in a lumber yard. Started working for a local contract outfit. <clears throat> then when I went to University of Idaho, uh, before I you know before I started taking classes, <coughs> excuse me, I. Uh, you know, already had the experience and they needed hands, so jumped on a shovel and went to work. What did you dig up? Oh, let me think. That first project? Uh -oh, you're thinking. Uh, well, oh, yeah, I'm thinking. That was probably, no, that was a uh, Kuski fish hatchery. Um, that was, uh, they're putting in a new uh, water effluent distribution pipe and, uh, so it went right through Chief Looking Glass's camp. That was about a, well, it was a historic, proto-historic site. I mean, after white folks done showed up. But <laughs> it went back about 9,000 years. And it had been a fishing village there for about 9,000 years. Wow. So it was, just, you know, 
the whole site as far as occupational, you know, where people lived, this stratigraphy, it went down probably about two, three meters. And it was just pit house on top of pit house on top of pit house. That was pretty cool. Wow. Did you find anything other than the pit houses? Well, the stuff inside the pit houses. Uh, Such as? You know, fish, fishnet sinkers, uh, grinding stones, fire hearths, stone tools. Um, probably the neatest thing that we found there was a rolled glass bead from, uh, from Great Lakes area that had been, been exchanged in trade probably maybe about a thousand years ago. And that, you know, that's probably the first, this is in North Idaho. So it had come halfway across the country from the Great Lakes. That was kind of neat. Uh, Dentelia, which is a, a shell that was found, is common along the Pacific coast, got traded around a lot for, used as currency actually. That was pretty neat, found a lot of that. But, oh wow! You know, I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm still pretty green. But yeah, I can tell you one thing: if you got a kid that's getting ready to go to college, don't don't let them read all the college textbooks before they go, because they're going to be bored for the first two three years. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, well, uh, from what I understand from some of the people I've talked to about you, uh, you were not bored during college. Oh, uh, oh, well, that's right. It had nothing to do with textbooks. My bad. Uh, well, well, it helps when you've already done your studying when you're uh, younger to be able to uh, not have to do your studying when you're older. There's that. All right. Okay. Why a bomb tech? Oh, geez. Well, that's kind of an interesting that, – that's a common question I get. And to me, there's no – Material culture, I can bore you to tears right now telling you the well, uh, history. I can bore you to tears telling you the history of milk can, you know, canned milk packaging. I can bore you to tears about glass manufacture. I can bore you to tears about stone tool manufacture or. We have an hour can- for me. Okay. Well, anyway, bombs and military ordnance or firearms or anything, they. It's just another aspect of material culture to me. So I had it, plus with my interest in firearms, military history, things of that nature, I gravitated toward that stuff. And there's not, well, in all of archaeology in the United States, there's only four people who cross-trained from archaeology and went into unexploded ordnance or UXO. And of those, one woman, she completely left archaeology and she went where the money is better. One guy, he decided he was just going to get out, go where the money was better, and decided that the people were kind of weird, so he went back to archaeology. One lady, she she and I both went to school about the same time so that we could do both archaeology and UXO work inside the grid during, during remediation so that if you've got an archaeological site that's crapped up with explosives, we would be able to be inside the grid working, wearing two hats. We could be working with bombs, and then when something needs to get dealt with archaeologically, we could do it safely and be inside of that exclusion zone, because otherwise nobody else can be in there. It's it's not safe. So that's really what kind of prompted me. I started, you know, I was... I came across the idea when I was doing archaeological support on a a forest service property in Wyoming called Pole Mountain. And there I was leading up a team, had about 12 archaeologists, and there was constant conflict because the forest service, they demanded having archaeological monitors in this area. It was a World War I training area. So there were World War I era sites, uh, campsites, farrier stations, blacksmiths, hospitals, things of that nature. The Forest Service wasn't very comfortable having unexploded ordnance techs going through. And what we do when we remediate is we scan the ground with magnetometers, metal detectors, and we extract anything that's metallic, ferrous or non-ferrous. So the bulk of the historic materials is metal. And all that stuff would just get ripped out of the ground, no context, thrown in a bucket, and just called scrap. And... um, Forest Service is not comfortable with that. So we had archaeologists out there 
as monitors recording the stuff as it's found. Well, the UXO techs were not comfortable with that either. We had to get a variance from the Army Corps of Engineers just to even be in the grid. So that prompted us, me and another lady, Hillary Jones, to go to school to become UXO technicians so that the Army Corps wouldn't have to write a variance anymore. And that's what kind of got me into it. And turns out I kind of like it. One thing you'll find about archaeologists, though, is a lot of them are pretty liberal and they're anti-gun, anti-military. And that's really, you know, I started off my career as a prehistoric archaeologist. When I first went to college, my idea was I was going to study clothes people and eventually become a professor. Well, I realized that that's a pretty narrow scope and not very many people end up being academics maybe only three percent of all archaeologists who ever stick around in the field ever follow that path 95 percent of us end up in contracting like where i ended up so i started doing mostly prehistory and then eventually i realized other people didn't want to do white people's garbage so i started doing white people's garbage i was good at it and then gradually i started realizing that hey a lot of these people they just wouldn't learn anything about firearms so i would take gladly i would take those things because i knew a thing or two about it then eventually got into the unexploded ordinance and eventually got into more and more stuff and my career started going a bunch of different directions uh, military um, defense international relations and things like that that i would have if i just stayed focused and wanting to do just what everybody else wanted to do i wouldn't have experienced them so that's kind of the long answer that's okay long answers are fine oh we've only got an hour <laughs> give me long answers we still have 45 minutes left <laughs> can you share a flute a few of your exploits uh, I know some of them are confidential or classified or whatever, but there has to be one or two that you can share. Well, probably one of my favorites was I, I, I'd ended up getting involved with Department of Energy pretty early on in being a project manager. And Department of Energy legacy program is really neat. What they do is they focus on real estate that is no longer part of the DOE mission, but they can't sell it off to people um, for whatever reason. Either it's beyond remediation due to radiological contamination. They can never sell it to anybody. Maybe it's safe, but they just can't. They can't. For whatever reason, they can't sell it. And that... I got to go around and document a bunch of nuclear test sites around the country. Um, never got to be able, I tried to get the one up in ADAC, which is the further, furthest northwest shot that was ever done. The furthest west, you, know, you can actually see Russia from this shot. It's on the Aleutian chain. Uh, but once I wrote up the cost estimate for that, they said no way. But anyway, uh, that kind of got me into the DOE loop. And one thing I got to do with that was uh, when the uh, U.S. Naval Petroleum Reserve Number Three Teapot Dome got was set to get sold off. It was going to get sold to private interests away from the Department of Energy. Um, that that caused a lot of turmoil as far as the cultural resources aspect goes, because not only historically was it really important, that was the big part of the, I don't know if you ever heard of the Sinclair controversy around Teapot Dome. There was a big scandal in the 1920s and 30s. It, oh, yeah, I was alive back then, so yeah, I, I know all about well, it. I've talked to a few of your friends, too. I'm sure you but, have. <laughs> uh, but the... Uh, so there's that part of the history, but also there's a lot of land around it that is culturally significant for local tribes. And so owing to my background with Department of Energy, also owing to my experience with Native American consultation, I was requested to come in and mediate between the tribes and Department of Energy and facilitate their nation-to-nation -nation consultation. That's a, a buzzword in my field um, because the tribes are considered sovereign nations by treaty. Right. 
And so they are the, the federal government, when they're doing something, they're required to communicate and consult with the tribes wherever they're affected. And in this case, they had a lot of sacred properties around Teapot Dome that if the federal government is moving it from federal nexus to private, where private can pretty much do whatever the heck they want, then the federal government has to talk to the tribes. Well, tribes don't necessarily just sit down and talk to just any any old person. And I, by extension of my experience, I'm able to sit down and talk to just about any group of folks anymore. Well, you and have that, that personality. Well, I speak redneck, and most Indians are redneck. <laughs> uh, honestly, they're just just like anybody else. But you get somebody from Denver, and they're used to an air-conditioned office and whatnot. They don't really know what – they don't know the questions to ask. They don't know how to put somebody at ease. Right. And the, value, the values are totally different. It's a rural, rural set of values on top of a very rich traditional set of values. And – I can I can make friends with tribes pretty easily. So that was one of the biggest wins I think of my career was I was able to take about 25% of Teapot Dome and strike the arrangement that that be excluded from the sale. It wasn't good for oil development. All the places that were good for oil development had already been pretty much hammered. Uh, this land was crazy. Do the at all. So get the private lower acreage and the uh, Department of Energy if they're able to conservation and the tribes were able to get an education area for taking kids out, do outdoor education and they had free access to, to that property. So it was a win for all three parties wow. and plus the taxpayer. So it, it was really a four-way win for just about everyone. And there were a lot of neat sites up there. That was one really good one. Um, the Prior of Energy wasn't always a wasn't always a rose garden. No, I. Uh, the reason I'm so gray is um, I, I didn't. Well, we can't see your gray underneath your hat. Oh uh, yeah, okay. true. But I uh, I worked for about a year and a half on Hanford Hanford Nuclear Reservation during the the, the peak of the Obama bucks, Obama's big stimulus package. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, Hanford was the number one recipient of Obama Bucks. And they were going to do 40 years worth of work in five years. And by most estimates, they did. They somehow managed to achieve all their milestones. I was there as a planner and scheduler, uh, but I was the head of of one of the contractors, Culture resource teams. Uh, I was tied to a soil and groundwater unit, and I was supposed to be there as a fixer. And the expectation placed upon me was to be able to streamline the process and speed up the process. Well, you can't speed up the process. They've got 30 days here and 30 days there and 30 days consultation periods, meetings, there's a lot of crap that goes into it. And that's why you want to do the the cultural resource stuff early on before even the environmental stuff gets going. They wanted to be able to dovetail it in and get something done within a week that usually would take six months and just not able to. So I had to be running between the tribes. I was working with at the time seven tribes. I was working with Department of Energy. I was working with the prime contractor, working embedded in a joint venture. Uh, I was working with the Department of Ecology, and all, I had to try and keep everybody happy and well informed. It wasn't always easy. And then trying to ride herd over a bunch of subcontractors, archaeologists are a pain to work with. Um, so that was probably the most trying of all of my experiences, especially working with DOE. I much rather worked with their uh, with their legacy program, the folks that had the, the heat taken off of them. Not nearly as much. They're, they're the outcasts. They write their own rules. The 
inside the DOE. That was that was frankly hell. Exploits. You you talked to Caleb Musgrave on your show not too long ago. He was. I did. He was. Yeah. He uh, he mentioned some stuff about a project we did in the Black Hills. That was probably my favorite project and definitely my favorite team. Because uh, uh, um, I come from a rural background and uh, spending a lot of time outdoors. A lot of companies and a lot of times when they had a project that was without cell reception, really remote long time outdoors what what have you i was the guy that got tapped for it and i got called into the boss's office owner of the company um and um he said well we've got this project coming up you're the only one i want on the job um the only one i picked to to lead it up and he showed me the maps and i said all right i'll take it but i want to make sure that i get to hand pick my team caleb was the first guy i called i've known the guy since he was 15 years old and I brought him down out of Canada and uh, then picked another kid just out of uh, Tennessee, well-known hiker, and started off with just the three of us. And we went out and, well, the boss had shown me the five projects. There was a timber sale up in the Black Hills uh, uh, Forest Service. And so we had those five projects. He never told me that those five projects were supposed to last us three years. And I'd chosen such a hot shit team that we went in there and I want days off and they just want to go. Because all we did the whole time was just, it was, we were working, we we're working hard. We doubled the number of sites previous, you know, that were previously documented in an area that was well, well surveyed. We doubled the total site count. And we were still just goofing off the whole time. It was nonstop fun. And one time we went 62 days straight without a day off. And um, I'd want to take a day off, and those guys would start complaining. So, <laughs> good team. Yes, doing something right. But no, that was that was a lot of fun. It was essentially, you know, Caleb running Canadian bushcraft uh, school up in Ontario. Um, it, it was. It was constantly learning. I was bouncing ideas off of his head. He was bouncing ideas off of my head. And Wes, who really a phenomenal guy, very quiet, a hard, hard worker. He was out of Memphis, and this was all new to him. Boy, he was straight out of college and thrown into the middle of Wyoming with two madmen, later to be three madmen and uh, and a crazy woman. And uh, <laughs> boy, all he did was just. We take breaks, we take naps, we cover, I think we average 27 miles a day cross country on that job. Yeah. What did you do? What did you do? What did we do? Am I guilty? No, what is, (laughs) no, you you say you you did like 27 miles cross country. What did you do? You just hiked just to hike or what did you do? No. What we were doing was we were following high probability areas on, on landforms where people would be likely to have sites or campsites or whatever. A lot of the slopes were like this, and you could tell automatically that, you know, if it's stripped down to barren bedrock, you're not going to want to go surveying that. Uh, not only is it not safe, but the dirt's all gone. It slid downhill. So... We'd do the ridge tops, come back down, go down a spine. We'd be looking off the edges, looking for mines or, or features like that. But we're taking you know down a ridge line and, and then back along down on stream beds and covering anything that looked like it might possibly be able to show a site. And uh, we found, in one case, we found a Pleistocene, you know, probably about fifteen thousand year olds. Uh, butcher kill site um, found some of the evidence in the road cut put in some test units and sure enough down about oh about four or five feet we started hitting uh, hitting bone and old old ice age uh, beach beach line so that was where we started hitting stone tools from so 
basically on that job. Typically on a normal job on a flat, we'd be just you line up every 30 meters and you just do transects, just do a grid and cover the whole thing. But in the mountains, you can't do that. And then once you find a site, stop, figure out the, the uh, figure out the boundaries of it, perimeter, GPS that in, find any tools you can, um, document those, counts, totals, tallies, photographs, maybe do some testing, subsurface testing, make sure you know, see if there's any depth to the thing, tag it, bag it, move on. Caleb had talked about one of his favorite experiences where the big cougar was following him, trying to munch on <sighs> his body. And um, yeah. uh, what were you doing at the time that he was being stalked by Mr. Kitty? Well, let me see. Wes was up the ridge. I had him going up and checking this big flat area. So he was up there doing transects. And Caleb was down low. Uh, well, he was checking for rock shelters, places, little, little caves where people might camp. I was checking some other stuff. <clears throat> is me down is this the same place that you were just talking about previously? In the same in, mount, Black Sissy. Hills. Yes. In the yes. Black Hills. Awesome. Black okay. Hills. So he called me down to take a look at a couple possible rock shelters. And so I was down there and then we started hearing this horrible yowling. And he's like, what the heck is that sound? And I was like, those are mountain lion kids. Those are kittens. And so we sat there listening to that for a little while. And that's when we heard the crunch of a pebble up above us. Uh, we were on a ledge with a couple false ceilings below us. And so about... 12 feet above us, maybe 15 feet above us, we were a pebble just kind of grind on bedrock. And we both stopped and Caleb shouted out, Wes, is that you? So I radioed Wes and, you know, he was a long ways away from us. So Caleb and I crawled up a chimney and got up to the top and went back around. And sure enough, there was a big pug mark about, oh, bigger than my hand. Good Lord. And right on top of us. And so she totally ghosted us. So we got tracking her and she went down around us and went through the grass and she went back to her kittens. So, well, she went into the brush basically. She went toward her kittens, then she went in the brush between, and brush was between the truck and us. So at that point, we made the decision to get back out of there. And uh, us over there and the three of us went back to the truck after that carrying guns well i was carrying a 357 at the time um but at well, that to hear point, him tell it you weren't armed oh well uh, i'm trying to remember no actually we were armed at that time we were only carrying uh no that now you're thinking about the instance when the mount this this it was i'm talking about the first run-in with that cat not the last run-in with the cat <laughs> The story oh, he wow. told you was the last room. That cat was hunting us the whole project. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then there was the day that, yeah, I left my rifle in the truck when I was, well, we were doing some shovel testing. Had my rifle back in the truck where we started. And I was working with the other two guys. And Caleb was up checking the road. And that's when I saw him walking down the road toward us with his gun cocked and pointing up the hill. And so I ran with a machete at war. And when there were two of us, that's what spooked that cat and she took off. But I didn't hear the gunshot that he fired. He was up around a corner for whatever reason. He must have been a mile and a half away and I still didn't hear that. Oh, wow. Yep. Four inch 357 Magnum and a lot of trees. So. What yeah, a four-inch fifty-seven magnet! The three fifty-seven is going to make a heck of a noise. Make pretty, make pretty big noise. None of us heard it. Of course, we had wow. our heads down on a hole, but still, would have thought we would have heard it. We fired one shot into a stump, and that cat backed off a little bit. But when I showed up, that cat was probably mm, seventy-five feet from him. Wow! She was incredible. We did. Yeah. She was inching her way, wasn't she? Yeah, he'd fallen down a mountainside. 
previous to that, so he was kind of a little bit limping. <laughs> Turns out he was doing all that stuff. When he fell down the mountainside, he was he felt a little sprained up, so we had him doing some light things. And uh, then he bounced back, and he was right back his old self. Well, it was a couple of years ago he went to see and asked me if he ever broken his well if he knew that he'd broken his back and it was probably that fall um doc said that he probably should have been paralyzed oh wow tough guy really tough guy. that's a tough guy wow yeah he's yeah he was definitely our strong guy wow what does archaeology and survival have in common well survival means a lot of things and it's been marketed a lot of different ways just like survival knife what the heck does that mean bushcraft what does that mean it means a lot of different stuff to different people um what gets marketed as bushcraft really ties its roots back to traditional life ways the ways that our ancestors regardless of culture did things every culture around the world had a stone age if you will and a lot of people that are involved in bushcraft or involved in wilderness survival tied back to traditional life ways they they're trying to emulate what was day-to-day -day life for these traditional peoples in archaeology you get the opportunity to see things hands-on not digested the way that you see in a survival manual or something, but you really actually see how people were applying it to solve certain problems in certain environments. And there are a lot of things that I saw as an archaeologist that are not taught in survival manuals, are not taught in traditional bushcrafting schools anymore. Almost all the bushcrafting schools tie around the same basic things. Friction fire, woo, yay. Everybody does friction fire. Um, but seeing storage caches, seeing the ways that, that people dealt without refrigeration in different environments, things like that hands-on definitely can tie into a survival strategy if you're in the desert. If you're, you know, How do people get water in the desert? When you're actually seeing material evidence hands-on, you're basically tracking human activity and seeing what it is that people did and how they made it work. And that really, that's another reason why I got into archaeology was I wanted to see things hands-on, not read about them in a book, not read about what somebody else thought that they, their interpretations of things. A lot of the archaeological interpretations are flat-out bogus, especially when you start talking to the the tribes and the people that have the oral history who maybe still do these things. Maybe they go out and dig roots. Maybe they still roast them and follow traditions that have been in their family for generations. Then you get a bunch of white bread academics from some university that have never gotten out, out into the bush and lived that way. They don't know. And so that's been a really big disconnect between traditional people and archaeologists and anthropologists is that they don't, they don't experience those things. There's a big disconnect between survival schools who teach what they think are traditional life ways and the people that actually use them as life ways. So I think archaeology can be a really great tool for a lot of different disciplines to be able to better understand what it is they're actually teaching students. Wow. Okay. In fact, that's, that's what really got, you know, I mentioned that I'd known Caleb since he was 15 years old, and it was his goal to eventually run a survival school, a bushcraft school. And when he was looking at that, I told him, you know, you need to go take some archaeology, uh, archaeology schools, you know, take some classes. And he did. Um, he he went through and got an education in archaeology, and he applies that directly into a lot of what he does. A lot of times to justify why he does things a certain way, because even though he is indigenous, you know, member of, of Anishinaabe tribe, uh, Ojibwe, he he still can look at, at at the tracks that are left behind by his ancestors. And a lot of that oral tradition, a lot of that oral history has been lost through cultural genocide, through years of 
assimilation into Canadian or European culture. And he's able to look at the evidence that his ancestors left behind and be able to more intimately understand why it is that things were done a certain way and how they were done. So that, I that definitely can him again. And then oh, after a, that interview, it'll be you and him. I, that show is going to be epic. Oh, boy. <laughs> this show will never be the same. Can you yeah. share a few survival situations that you and your team have been in? The worst was also in the Black Hills. Probably the most scared I've ever been outdoors. Um, and that, that really taught me an awful lot about myself and what it means to be a leader. Um, we were heading down way deep into a canyon and we were probably about three miles from the truck at that point, down slope. And we were going a lot deeper. We planned to at least. And a freak storm, mountain storm came up out of nowhere. Oh my gosh. They're really good at that too. Yeah. Lightning, rain, high winds, winds were probably 50, 60 miles an hour sustained with major gusts, at least 70, maybe 80. And we were in timber. We had no choice. Trees started to come down around us. Trees were exploding. They were uprooting. They were falling. Jeez. Lightning. And it was me, Wes, you know, Caleb. It was five of us. Yeah. And so we were down there and got together. And I said, all right, everybody, it doesn't matter what happens. Everybody make it to the truck. Don't stop for anybody. Don't try to help anybody don't if somebody goes down don't worry about it just keep going get to the truck yeah i was knowing that all we had were basic first aid kits there was nothing if a tree fell on somebody put another person in danger that wouldn't be wise and then do what i mean you've got a blister kit that has some band-aids and maybe some tape um you know we're traveling pretty light and so uh, I had a full trauma kit back in the back in the truck and we were, you know, basically the rule was keep somebody in the corner of one eye and keep somebody in the corner of another and stay tight and go. And so we moved. It was like going through artillery and just trees wow. blowing up all this. And everybody talks about about things slow down when it's a high stress situation. I've never had that problem things always speed up and move really, really fast. And so do I. And we made that, we cleared that three miles straight uphill without a break, without a stop in short order. I don't know how long it took us, probably, I don't know. It was maybe 12 minutes, the truck, uh, we were running and got to the truck. And first thing I did was grab the trauma kit, lose my backpack, and wait for people to catch up and do a head count. Sure enough, we were all there. But I knew I, I knew for a fact that I was, I mean, I was preparing. I was going to go back down in and find whoever it was that was lost. We all had Garmin radios, so we could tell exactly where the other one was. So if somebody had gone down, uh, I knew where they were. And I was looking, and sure enough, they were all still moving. Wow. So, yeah. So that's your most memorable moment of your career? Oh, that was the scariest. Most memorable moment of my career. I've got so many that I, I can remember. Some are funny. Some are kind of scary. Some are, I don't, know, I don't know. People always ask me what the coolest thing I ever found was, and that's always a difficult one to answer. Uh, probably the most memorable was I was pretty young. This was back in Idaho. And um, we were, the, the Nez Perce tribe had been putting in a sewer line for a new housing development. While they're doing that, this is Lapway, Idaho, if anybody's familiar. Um, they're putting in a sewer line, they hit a trash dump from the old Fort Lapway. And the fort had been a major U.S. cavalry outpost. Um, and it's on what is presently the reservation, old village site. And so, of course, the military is throwing away all their trash, their cans, their old scrap iron, ceramics, whatever. 
and they had conscri- conscribed a bunch of Nespersmen in as native scouts. And the scouts would go out with the cavalry, serve as interpreters, serve as spies in some cases, guides against other local tribes and in the interest of the U.S. military. Old story, still changed today. And so when the U.S. military decided to terminate that program, essentially send all their Nespers scouts back, they weren't trusted very well by their tribe. And so a ceremony was conducted that was it was kind of invented for this occasion. The Nez person never dealt with this before. And so what they did was they sent all of these young scouts off and ostracized them for 12 months. They went out for a year on their own. No help, no contact with the outside world or the inside world. They were alone. They were essentially dead. Their families mourned them as being dead. And when a year was up, all these men came back to the village and they would strip they they got together outside the fort and they all stripped naked they stripped off their old uniforms and buried them there in the landfill the army landfill is army waste oh, and wow. then the elders got and essentially gave a birthing ceremony and then they were each renamed they were no longer the old name they were born their new name and they were given a new family their old family they might be friends but they weren't mother and father aunt and uncle anymore they were new members of the tribe wow and they were welcomed and so while we're digging along through all this old army waste i find this bucket and it's packed full of dirt and so i took the bucket and took over to a clean car and upended it and out came thousands of seed beads, little beads that are used for Native American beadwork. Oh, thousands wow. of long brass epaulets from a U.S. Army cavalry uniform and all, all the brass from U.S. cavalry uniform, plus a bunch of blue wool felt that was all rotten. Mm-hmm. And what it was was a scout uniform, what was left of it. And in that birthing ceremony, or the death ceremony, I guess, or rebirth, that scout had rolled up his uniform and shoved it in that in that in that bucket and buried. It. Wow. That was pretty interesting to be able to. I didn't know what it. We none of us really knew what it was until the tribe told us the story. So to be able to actually take a, a point in history, not just a period in history, but an actual physical point and tie it to, you know, the, through analysis, I. I I was told that they might be able to actually figure out which individual that was. Wow. Just based on the percentage of what color beads were what, what pattern it could be, and they might be able to figure out who. That was the largest collection of seed beads that was ever uh, recovered in North America. Wow. That's impressive. So so that's kind of one of the more memorable ones. What What inspires you, Jim? Oh, love. Kittens. Kittens? Kitten videos. Not really. Uh, more <laughs> of a dog. Uh, but no, I, uh, what inspires me? Creativity, music, nature. Um, nature is my church. I see my creator yeah. still creating. I don't I believe that the that. earth. I don't believe the earth was created in six days and God took a day off. God still worked. Even on that seventh day, and he's still working today. I see creation all around me. I see geologic processes. I see, I see the plan going on, and I see it going forward. And the plan is hopefully long after I'm gone. Um, I, I don't draw a distinction between any one thing, past, present, future. It's, uh, yeah. Well, you know, we could talk all night, but our time is up, so I'm told. Yep. Uh Uh-oh. I know, right? Do you have any last words of encouragement for those that are listening? Well, 
my main word of encouragement probably would be get ready for what's coming. We got a lot, a lot coming that I don't think that even those folks who think stuff are coming can even even conceptualize. Um, I think that one of the major concerns is going to be that people band together. Uh, think about what would your ancestors have done in the Dust Bowl? What would your ancestors have done during the roundup of Japanese Americans or any any situation throughout history? What would your people have done to try and get together and, and maintain a, a society, a culture? You got to defend what you got, folks. And whatever that means to you, please be prepared to do it. That's good advice. One of these days, one of these days, you and I need to do a an excursion. Well, I'd love that, Kate. Uh, you think that, that would be uh, fun? You think well, you could uh, teach me some archaeological lessons in the in the woods? Oh, I'm sure I could probably teach you a couple. Okay, uh, we could go make some stuff. That some would stone be awesome. tool manufacturing, flake stone tools. We could go to Glass Buttes, Oregon. That's just right down the road from me. Find a whole bunch of obsidian and sit there and break rocks. We could catch fish someplace traditionally. We could uh, maybe we could even build a canoe or something. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we'll talk about that when you and Caleb are on. This ends yeah. the broadcast for me tonight. I'd like to give a shout out to United States veteran Jeff May of Kentucky. It was an honor to meet you and talk with you when I was there. My words of encouragement to you, Jeff, is stay focused. I want to thank Jim Christensen for being my special guest tonight. I enjoyed talking to you. An hour is just not long enough. Um, remember, everyone, train hard and train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. And this is Kate signing off. Until next time. Thank you, Kate.